positivity for me might mean something very, very different to you, but it's giving yourself that permission to do what lights you up. Yeah. And I think that that's really important for our endurance and being able to stick to things, especially when things get hard and challenging. Yeah, because when they do get hard and challenging, quite often the things that fill us up and are positive in our lives are the first things to go, or that's what we compromise. Yeah, it becomes low priority. And then what ends up happening is that we're like a car that's running on an empty tank, and you might have those warning signs, you know, the light could be flashing, you know, empty, empty, and we ignore it. We go, oh, I can just go another kilometre. I'll just go another kilometre. No, I think I can still get another couple of kilometres out of the tank. And then we just break down. Yeah. This is Reignited, where together we will meet interesting people who have a curious message for the world. They'll tell us about their experiences so that we can all reignite our lives. Hello, we're live for our first interview series here at the pod booth. And it's so exciting to have this series where we're going to be curious, we're going to meet some great humans and really hear about them because they have something to share with the world. So who knows where this conversation is going to take us. Maybe there'll be laughter and tears and everything in between. But one thing's for sure is that we'll learn from these amazing people. And our first guest is certainly no exception to that. So I would like to welcome Rebecca Smith from Smith & Wellness. Um, Beck and I crossed paths many, a couple of years ago, around... She was doing a talk and I was really struck by this person who had something to share that was really, really important. The message was something that really hit me, but also her warmth and connection was something that really struck me as well. So welcome back. We'll, Thanks, Belle. We'll talk a little bit about your background and everything as we get going. But for those of you who don't know, Beck is from Smith & Wellness, her own private business practice, and she's a psychology educator a physiotherapist, a group fitness instructor, and is an ambassador for Reebok. Yeah. So yeah. quite a vast experience there. Yes, pretty varied background. Yeah. So to begin, I thought what we'd do is for you to choose a few symbols to introduce yourself and then we'll get into a conversation around what mental fitness is and, and how that sits in your life. Great. Well, thank you for having me and thank you for opening up with this amazing introduction activity. So Belle's asked me to pick three cards out of quite a big pack here. So I kind of flicked through and picked a few that, that resonated the most. So the first one is that of a mirror, which speaks to me around self-awareness. I think that being aware of my own internal processing is really important in the work that I do in helping other people with theirs. And a lot of the work that I do is around helping people to hold up that mirror to themselves and to increase their self-awareness. So that resonated for me both on a personal as well as a professional level today. A bit of that self-reflection and, yeah. and people bringing that awareness to themselves and what's actually happening. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, cool. And then the other one that I chose was a swing. And I've been speaking quite a bit recently to people around the the symbolism around the pendulum and how we sometimes work to an extreme of a particular area and sometimes we need to find balance by allowing the pendulum to swing all the way in the other direction before we find that happy medium. And one of the principles that I love working to is balance. So when I saw the, the symbolism of the swing pop up, I went, oh, that's, that's for me, signifying that sense of finding your balance, but also needing to have a bit of movement in order to get there in the first place. Yeah, definitely. So that equilibrium that sort of comes from 
from each each way. Yeah, yeah, mm. absolutely. Yeah, nice. And then the third one was a blank card. <laughs> and I went, I had another card chosen, which I can't even remember what it was now, but I was flicking through and went, oh, my gosh, a blank card. There is just so much potential in that. And we've spoken a little bit recently around, you know, flux and change and, you know, being in a transition period, which I feel like I'm in at the moment. And the blank card for me just symbolised that potential for anything and everything to come up. Yeah, so anything and everything can sort of come up. Yeah. 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 So, Beck, you've developed a model of mental fitness and I really love this concept from many different points of view. So do you want to just talk a little bit about how did that begin? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because obviously I know from the clients that I see and talking to people like yourself that some of these concepts don't come just, you know, an idea. There's actually experiences that happen in your life because of your own lived experience. So yeah. where should we start with that? Wow, how far back can I go? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the mental fitness model that I've constructed most most recently is based both on my professional work but my personal experiences as well. Mm-hmm. And I suppose where I should start is where I first became interested in psychology, which was as a young person really struggling with my own mental health. And so as I neared the end of high school, I became really fascinated in studying psychology for my own benefit. I wanted to understand my own mindset and I wanted to understand how I could potentially improve my own mindset. And I saw other people who seemed to be happy and who seemed to be coping so much better than I was with life. So I became really fascinated with studying the workings of the human mind. And my my mother warned me against studying psychology and told me that I wouldn't be strong enough to, to cope with it. And I, I went through university during my first degree, just finding it a really fascinating area of, of study. And then at the end of the day, deciding not to go ahead and become a clinical psychologist because I didn't actually feel like I was strong enough to be able to work with other people with their own issues that they brought to the table. So I went into research instead. So my career since then has been a meandering path through different ways of working with with health, but never directly with clinical psychology care. However, I've come full circle back to in the last two years, looking at working as a psychology educator and not doing the one-on-one clinical work, but actually now working with rooms full of people where I get to share some of my experiences of mental illness talk through how I was able to then become mentally healthy and then start to talk about this third state around our mental psychological health, which I now call mental fitness, which is about not just falling into being healthy by accident but actually taking deliberate steps toward making yourself as mentally fit as as possible. So that's the, I guess, short version of a very long story. Um but yeah, happy to unpack any of those pieces as you see fit. Yeah, so you mentioned the word strength um, a couple of times there. So what is strength to you? Like how does how has that evolved for you? Because you sort of talked about it in a I'm not strong enough sort of point of view. Mm, how yeah. does that sit with you now? Strength for me manifests as being able to use some of the logical and rational parts of your mind and particularly when you choose to do so. So I felt as a younger person that I didn't have that sense of rationality 
about me. I was a very emotional creature and very reactive. And so I probably lived in an emotional and a stressed state a lot of the time. I wasn't able to see things for the the clarity and the logic that they had. So for me, the when I talk about mental strength, I'm probably talking more about what some people would refer to as the like left hemisphere of the brain, you know, those kind of those logical, rational pathways. And I have seen the way that I've been able to develop strength in myself over time, which has been around bringing out parts of my identity and starting to understand those parts of my personality and identity that I relate to, but also being able to put that in perspective with rational thought and being able to think about my thinking in in a zoomed out kind of way. Yeah. So not being in the midst of, of stress, but actually being able to zoom out of my own thinking for a little while and go, okay, what's going on there? So what's that thought that's then leading to that emotion? And so that forms a strong part of mental strength for me. And the other layer of mental strength, not just understanding my identity and being able to think about my thinking, but the third part of that is being able to be authentic in sharing those parts of me and sharing my thought processes with others so that there's less of a filter between me and the outside world. It's not so much, oh, I'll I'll only share with you, you know, the little pasts that I think you should see, but actually, you know, showing up authentically and going, this is this is who I am, this is how I am today. Yeah, and is that yeah. why authenticity and metacognition, which is the thinking about thinking, mm. have been included in the model? Yeah. Shall we go back to when you were a young person and what was your experiences of life? Like how did that look for you? Yeah, so from early on my experiences of life were, were mixed and my family background was quite mixed. I came from a family where my mother had German heritage. Her parents, my grandparents, had moved to Australia in the 50s from Germany. And she, as a young person herself, had been raised with a lot of responsibility, often needing to translate for, for her mum. And so she'd had to grow up quite early. So my mother had expectations of myself and my sister to be quite responsible from a very young age, as she had had to be. And so the expectations from her side were one thing. And then on my dad's side of the family, there um, was a, a sense of productivity. You know, you've got to be doing in order to be achieving, in order to be valuable. And... So there, was, there were these messages around we needed to always be productive and we needed to be achieving things and they needed to be done really well as well. So my mum was a bit of a perfectionist and expected perfection in us too. So as a young person, always working really hard to achieve high standards in, in school, but at the same time not really having space to socialise as a young person either. So my mother loved having a very neat home and a very, you know, tidy environment. She didn't like other people's children in her house. Mm. And so so my upbringing was one where I felt quite um, isolated and lonely a lot of the time. I would really want to have friends over or really want to, you know, interact with people outside of school but didn't really have the opportunity to, to do that. And so I became probably more reclusive than, than the average you know, child and teenager and retreated into books a lot. So and were books your escape? Yeah, books were an escape and books were a sense of you were doing something productive with your time yeah. as well. Yeah. 
And, you know, along with that perfectionism and, you know, that striving for high achievement, there was also such a cultural clash in my family. So I had the German side with my mum and on my dad's side, Aboriginal heritage. And we grew up in Alice Springs and there was such cultural tension around the, the social environment, but also within my home as well. And so identity for me was something that was really challenging to explore because I was getting mixed messages about who I should be. So some of the messages from some people in my family was that I should be denying my Aboriginal heritage and some really harsh things that would come out, like, you know, oh, don't act like a black kid. And, you know, those, those messages that you get around, oh, that's, that's part of who I am but that's bad and I shouldn't be that and the, the implicit and the explicit racism that you're exposed to um, was really challenging as a young person. And so in terms of forming identity, who I came to see myself as was potentially quite inaccurate. You know, I saw myself as somebody who wasn't good enough, who needed to be achieving more in order to be valued, who was, you know, certainly never going to be valued by, you know, potential parts of society or even my own family. And so I grew up with this sense that I always needed to do more in order to be more and I never felt like I would achieve that. So I got into quite a hopeless and a helpless state. So by the time I was 13, I developed anorexia and the way that that was was handled was was with a sense of shame in my family. You know, it was, you know, snap out of it, you know, you just just need to eat, just need to eat. (laughs) And was it that easy? Yeah, no, No. absolutely not. Mm. And, you know, at the time I didn't really understand where a lot of that process was coming from for me. So um, there was that absolute need to try to perfect and to try to control parts of my life when I didn't have control over other parts of my life. Yeah, so it was... It was coming out through the eating disorder and um, your mental health. Yeah, absolutely. So that's how it manifested Mm. for me. And I didn't know that that's what was going on at the time. You know, you're just kind of, you know, bumbling around in this cloud of emotion and trying to, you know, live and, you know, survive the best way that you can. Particularly at that age where identity is really coming forward in that developmental stage. Yeah. um, That it... Um, is something that can sort of happen. But the one thing that I that has struck me about what you're talking about and quite often people will talk about high-achieving people and uh, they're amazing and there's all this stuff happening. Mm-hmm. But knowing that perfectionism to its extreme can actually be detrimental as well. Like what are your mm. thoughts around that? Yeah, I'm glad you raise it because I speak about perfectionism as being something to avoid. So now in my vernacular, when I use perfectionism, I'm like, you know, that is a no-go area. That's unhealthy because it's the extreme. That's the pendulum swinging all the way to that high achievement side. Whereas I know that perfectionism for some people, you know, is still something that they would strive for, Mm. you know, so there would be a positive connotation to that for, for some people. But for me, having lived in that for such a long time and having experienced how paralyzing it is, to always be needing to do something right and get something right and be right. I know that there were so many opportunities that I missed and so many things that I didn't actually get done because I was so worried about not doing them right that 
my my view on perfectionism is going like that. That's a dangerous area. <laughs> like if if I feel myself starting to strive for something that is is too complete or too right, I can catch myself now and go, oh, hang on, that's the perfectionism kicking in as well. What drives that? Do you think? I think probably some of those really early messages that I got as a young person, and you know, coming home with an A on an assignment and having my mother say, why is it not an A plus? <laughs> Where did you lose marks? What went wrong? And just never feeling like it was good enough or up to standard. Yeah. And so what did that do for your own self-worth? And um, was it a case of, because what I've seen with lots of clients of mine is when perfectionism is, is the driver, they mm. won't try things because mm. um, it's easier not to try than to not get it perfect. Absolutely. Or on the other hand, there's this sense of, no matter what I do, I'm not good enough. Yep. Um, so how did it play out for you? Yeah, there was definitely that sense of no matter what I do, it's never going to be good enough. Um, so I did stop trying. I stopped taking risks and would be very hesitant to try any new activity um, and just stuck with what I knew and what I knew I could be good at. Yeah. 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 And that came very out. safe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So now that you know what you know mm. and you've done a lot of personal development as well as filling yourself in in various career choices and mm. um, we've got mental fitness model now which part of it do you feel is the most important like how does it all sit together well firstly actually do you want to just talk about the fact of what it is and how it came to be yeah yeah, yeah. sure so to give you that structure there's mental strength which forms one third of the model for me there's mental flexibility, you know, being able to adapt, being able to shift how you feel, how you think. And then there's also mental endurance, being able to stay the course and have that sense of, you know, being resilient in the face of challenges, but also being able to stick to a habit or stick with an activity or, um, yeah, just stay the course with something. Yeah. And those three parts of the model have then got different depths as well. So with mental strength, flexibility and mental endurance, there are parts of that model which speak to identity. So how do we actually form our identity? So we have character strengths that we have that make up who we are and we have values that we have, those things that drive us as guiding principles that are those factors that are very important to us. And we also have creativity, which I think is something that is such a core part of people that often get stamped out of us quite early in life when we're told that our our creative expressions aren't good enough, aren't up to standard, and then we become a bit shy of expressing ourselves creatively. Yeah, and obviously I'm a big fan of creativity in as far as, you know, I help people facilitate their life through creativity. Yeah. So let's go back to the whole idea of identity. Do you, how do you think that's shaped and formed and does it change? Yeah. yeah. And I think that we have some choice and we have some volition over identity as well. And I certainly think that we have that potential to adapt it over time according to what we choose, and but that we start with a bit of a set point. Yeah. And we can decide, do we stay with that identity? Do we stay with seeing ourselves that way? Or can we expand on the way that we see ourselves or shift the way that we see ourselves. Yeah. So how do we shift it? Through many different practices. And that's going to be different for everybody. So for me, 
my identity as a teenager, for instance, was somebody I saw myself as somebody who was nerdy, who was shy, who didn't fit in anywhere. And so working with that, not against it, but with that over time to go, okay, what can I do to shift that so it's more productive for me? And now I speak for a living. You know, I certainly wouldn't classify myself as as shy. Um, I still classify myself as nerdy, but I embrace that. <laughs> <laughs> and is that part of it as well as finding other nerdy people? <laughs> I think, uh, you know, the people yeah. you hang around with and that sort of conform and shape and have you feeling more comfortable with who you are? Oh, absolutely. And I think acceptance and belonging is such a big thing for human beings and has certainly been thematic for me throughout my life is trying to find acceptance and trying to find that sense of belonging from other human beings. And I know that once I started to find people that I resonated with that, you know, had similar points around their identity that they saw themselves in similar ways to how I saw myself, you know, there was this resonance that made me feel like, oh, okay, I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one. <laughs> yeah. There's other people like me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that gives you the space and the room to be able to celebrate yourself and celebrate your identity when you don't feel like you're going to be completely cast out of the human race. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We might come back to um, that sense of belonging because I know you talk a lot about about that, but mm. I can't let creativity just <laughs> go no. by. And this is obviously one of the reasons that we've connected in the yeah. past as well, because it's, I think, such an integral part of, of, of us, the way that I see human beings and such an integral part of the work that you do. So, you know, yeah. that resonates with us. So what, how would you define creativity? Like what is it and how does it play out? Yeah, I think creativity for me is bringing something new into existence, something that didn't exist before. And it's potentially a more broad perspective than some people have of creativity. You know, some people may only see creativity as producing art. And for me, creativity can be about the way that you see yourself, you know, creating identity. It can be around creating a piece of, of music, visual art, theatre, whatever that may be in the art realm. It could be around creating relationships. It could be around creating new ideas and, and new innovations. And in order for us to evolve as individuals, as organisations and businesses, as a human species, as a world at large, we always need to be creating new ways of doing things in order to be able to, to survive and to thrive. Yeah, definitely. Mm. So it is that real innovative, it, it's not just about art. Um, mm. and really looking outside of that to go, well, what are we creating and how are things shifting and moving Yeah. Um, as well? And it comes back to that card, the symbol card. I think the mirror for me really represents the type of creativity that I work with in as far as the creation um, reflects something back and it's about that self-reflection and having yeah. a look in that mirror as yeah. well. Yeah. yeah. So you've experienced a couple of my workshops. Um, is there anything you want to explain about the way that, I use creativity, um, you know, how has that evolved for you and what are your yeah. thoughts and responses around that? It has been particularly moving and particularly interesting for me to see the way that you work. I was actually speaking to somebody about it this morning yep. and said that because I had done individual art therapy sessions with you before I had experienced the workshop setting with you and I initially before coming into art therapy 
I didn't really know what it was or how it would work. And so actually being able to experience that process of unpacking thoughts and unpacking emotions through shifting shapes and shifting colours and, you know, being able to, to play in a tactile way, not just in a visual way, I was really curious to see which different parts of me that tapped into. And certainly it went to a different place than other talking therapies that I'd had with, with psychologists, for instance. And then to see that translate into a workshop format was really enlightening. I was like, oh, I'm so curious to see how Belle takes what she does one-on-one and how does that process work with a group? And the way that you're able to facilitate through just asking the right questions and giving that opportunity and offering the space to go, okay, if you connect this with this, how does that feel? And when you put this there, what does that change? And so the, the combination of being able to explore, first of all, with the combination of the questions that you pose that are just so you know thought-provoking really has taken me into a different layer and a different depth of processing than I have you know, with other modalities before. That's been a really wonderful experience. Yeah, so you um, quite often will talk about the body-mind connection mm. um, and I heard you talk about that it does tap into other areas. Mm. How does this model and mental feel, fitness sort of play out for you? So, mm. um, well, You asked before what's the most important part of the model and for me I think that a real turning point was in embracing the mental flexibility side. So for me personally, I think that that's where it's at for me and maybe just at this point in my life, whereas other parts of the model might resonate more for other people at different points in their lives. But the the mental flexibility for me was around, you know, first of all, shaping that identity to embrace creativity. Yeah. Also then having compassion and that means compassion for others as well as compassion for self. So understanding that everyone is doing the best that they can with the resources that they have and also understanding that I'm doing the best I can with the resources that I have and that has been particularly pivotal in starting to unwind those threads of perfectionism that I had that were really paralysing for me and because that had been such a strong theme, having the flexibility to then go, do you know what, it doesn't have to be perfect it can be this instead, it just opened up this whole world of could instead of should. Should, yeah. And is that um, the shoulds for how other people behave as well as yourself or, you know, that internal, external sort of thing that plays out? Yeah, absolutely. And I think where it made so much impact for me personally was first working with a psychologist that started to help me to change my language from I should do this or I should be that to then, well, I could do that or I could explore another possibility. And so it started off, first of all, for, for me and how I saw myself and has now then extended to other people. And so it's helped me to be much more compassionate toward others as well and going, okay, well, they, they could have done X, Y and Z. They could have behaved in this way. They didn't or they did and it is how it is. Rather than, I think when you're a perfectionist, you do expect that in other people as well. And you can stay in judgment rather than staying in compassion. So for me, that compassion part in 
the mental fitness model that sits within flexibility has been really pivotal in just creating some space to how I relate to myself, but creating space in how I relate to others as well. Yeah. So space, is that an important part of your practice as well? You know, Absolutely. You talked about being an introvert or a bit shy, Yeah. Um, which is not necessarily the same thing. Yeah. Um, where does space play out for you? Yeah. Space plays out for me all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> you know, having space in my day, having space in my mind, having um, a sense of spacious, spaciousness in my body as well. Um, because for so long when I didn't have that degree of flexibility, you know, I felt so compressed. Everything in my life felt compressed. My body felt tight. My diary looked tight. (laughs) And, you know, everything was playing out according to this. This should happen. That should happen. This needs to happen. That must happen. And there just wasn't any spaciousness. So embracing flexibility and compassion, um, also a sense of intuition for me as well, I think that space both internally as well as externally has been really important to allow some different types of messages to come in around, you know, it's okay that it's this way and listen to my gut rather than just listen to what's in my head with all those shoulds or look at what's in my calendar with all those shoulds and go, okay, what feels right? So right down to just the very day-to-day level of asking myself the question, okay, what's most important right now? You know, do I need to rest or do I need to charge ahead with that task? You know, do I need to make that phone call or do I just need to breathe a little bit for myself first? And being able to discern intuitively what's the right next step. It's been a much more wise way of living than I was living before. Yeah, so I guess it comes down to that awareness as well, you know, Mm. when your diary is so chock-a-block that you don't actually have any flexibility, then you hold it in your body and this metaphor and symbolism sort of plays out. Yeah. It's so busy, being busy or, you know, everything's happening that we forget to actually go, well, what do I actually need Yeah. in this moment? Yep. Yeah, <laughs> that the shoulds play um, start getting really loud. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. So is there any other part of the model that you would like to sort of talk about Um, I guess probably to expand on that third part of the model around mental endurance and how do we actually see things through because we can be strong but just like our bodies can be strong, we might be able to lift a really heavy weight and do something difficult but we might not be able to do that repeatedly and it's all well and good to be flexible and to be able to bend and to be able to, to shift and move but, again, if we can't, then do that repeatedly and do it with consistency, then we often don't get the outcomes in life that we want. So for me, the mental endurance part of the model is an important underpinning to a lot of the rest of it. And that really speaks to understanding your value system. So in terms of your identity, what is important to you? What are those values that are driving your behaviour? And then there's stillness. So when you were talking about space, that's very much related to, for me, building in moments of stillness in my day. And that could simply be taking a pause to take a breath before I step into the next task. It could be scheduling some meditation time or swimming is a really important time out for me. It could be having alone time. You know, I I live with um, my partner and my stepdaughter who are wonderful and they're wonderful extroverts. So they really want to be around people all the time. So 
sometimes I just need that sense of going, I just need the house to myself. You know, yeah. I need to recharge by having my own space here. And so that can that can be what stillness means to me in those moments. And the other part of endurance, not just understanding your values and embracing that sense of stillness, but is also embracing and allowing yourself to celebrate positivity because we can get so stuck in a downward spiral of only seeing the negatives in things. And, and I know from a neuroscience point of view that our brain is primed to see the negative because your brain wants to protect you from threats, so it will often look for the threats. Yeah. And we forget the positive stuff. Yeah. And it can just kind of, you know, slip out of our awareness before we've actually caught on to it. So, you know, being able to cultivate positivity and that might mean cultivating gratitude in yourself and noticing what things are really good in your life. It could be giving yourself that permission to go and do something that you actually enjoy rather than those things that you feel you should be doing. Indulge in the company of a loved one, you know, you know celebrate those connections with, with other people. So positivity for me might mean something very, very different to you, but it's giving yourself that permission to do what lights you up. And I think that that's really important for our endurance and being able to stick to things, especially when things get hard and challenging. Yeah, because when they do get hard and challenging, quite often the things that fill us up and are positive in our lives are the first things to go or that's what we compromise. Yeah, it becomes low priority. Yeah, because we're so, you know, we're thinking this other thing over here is needing that priority. But in actual fact, what we're doing is forgetting about ourselves and our own mental fitness I guess yeah yeah and then what ends up happening is that we're like a car that's running on an empty tank and you might have those warning signs you know the light could be flashing you know empty empty and we ignore it we go oh I can just go another kilometer I'll just go another kilometer no I think I can still get another couple of kilometers out of the tank and then we just break down yeah and although I do push that (laughs) (laughs) the empty just to test the theory (laughs) and I think we see a lot of people doing that for themselves and their energetic tanks so you know it's important to have those moments where we then go all right I'm going to pause and I'm going to refuel yeah so is that what mental mental fitness is is how do I refuel and how do I stay nourished how do I live my life yeah yeah very much so it's that sense that I am able to cope with the best of life and I've got the fitness to cope with the worst of life yeah. as well. Yeah. And I've quite often heard you in the past, Beck, talk about, you know, a, a person who's really good at weights, mm. um, you know, has a strength, but there's other parts that may be lacking. Can you just talk yeah. a little bit about that in the metaphor of, of this model? Because we haven't really probably described it as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for asking. Mm. And I think that metaphor for me comes from having worked in the fitness industry for 16 years and... I see people in gyms who work their bodies with a real focus on strength. And they might even go to the point of just working on particular muscle groups, really focusing in on, you know, want to work this muscle group. And that that mentality of only working on strength then leads to injury. And as a physiotherapist, I've seen that over and over again with people. Yep, you can lift heavy weights, but you can't actually reach behind your back and now that you're trying to, you know, put your body into this, you know, position where you need to be actually shifting out of your your normal range of motion, all of a sudden now your body's saying no. And it happens psychologically as well. Now we can train ourselves to think in a particular way over and over again. So we can just try to rationalize and make things as logical as possible which is where I shifted to in the early stages of me starting to recover from mental illness. 
but then just keep going down that logic path and essentially lifting the same mental weight over and over again that we then don't have the flexibility to balance ourselves out, mm. which for me is why it's really important, like, like a bodybuilder, you know, might not have the flexibility that they need to be engaging in other activities outside of weightlifting. We do need to have that balance of working on our flexibility and having that endurance to, you know, to stay the course as well. Yeah, so it comes back to that whole symbolism that you talked about at the beginning with the pendulum. Mm. You know, too much of anything is not necessarily positive because we're denying another part. And quite often in my work, that's what we're actually looking at quite often is the tension between two things. Mm. And it's not about denying one aspect. It's about holding it between them. Yeah. 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 So I do want to talk a little bit about balance and if there's anything else to add with that. Yeah. So balance for me, I guess, is a more recent phenomenon in my life because I went from the very emotional, reactive, you know, child, teen to then, right, I just need to be more logical about this and swung all the way to, no, just, just think it through. Does this make sense? And then I started to ignore some really powerful concepts like intuition mm. and I started to work so much from the logical centres of my brain that that didn't serve me either. So I could see the sense in things, but I wasn't really enjoying the juice of life. And so to the point where I would cut myself off from having connections with people as well, you know, oh, love, joy, oh, <laughs> all that stuff doesn't make sense. Feelings. Feelings. <laughs> oh, my gosh, who needs that? You just need to be rational. So I then stopped experiencing some of those things that I think really are the fuel for life and the fuel for our energy, and it left me feeling really empty. Mm. So I found myself in my late 20s having done a lot of psychology work and a lot of work with therapists and going, mm, well, the, the cognitive behavioural processes of thinking about my thinking are all well and good, but where's the fun? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, actually maybe I need to embrace some other aspects of my my being. And so for me balance has been about recognising my own humanity again and knowing that I will stumble and fall but I can get back up again, knowing that I might laugh and make an idiot of myself in doing so and have a great time and that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I don't have to be stuffy and stale and, you know, just present as somebody who is, you know, who's rigidly perfect, but actually just, you know, have that pendulum somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. And that's swinging, not denying any part because thinking is important, but feeling is important as well. Yeah. And just sort of seeing how it goes. Absolutely. Yeah. I so. used to just push emotion away. You know, for a long time, I was like, all right, we need to control that emotion. Maybe we need to repress that emotion. Uh, maybe I can just get rid of that emotion yeah. altogether. <laughs> Let's How try did to that work out that. for you? Yeah, that didn't work out so great. <laughs> yeah, it's that thing too, I think, of um, feeling that we have to have all the positive emotions, mm. but the what could be considered as not so nice negative emotions are a really important part of us being human. Yeah. Um, and it is about the whole spectrum. Yeah. yeah. And having the emotional intelligence in oneself to recognize that your emotions are giving you information. And emotions are data. Mm. And it's pointing to something in your subconscious mind. It might not be in your awareness yet, but it's giving you something to pay attention to. And yeah. It's really useful. 
Yeah, definitely. Mm. So this model is really interesting and I'm sure we'll put some notes up so people can have a look at it more closely. Great. What's your plan for the model? So my plan for the model is, is broad. So at first what I wanted to do with it is to start introducing it into the fitness industry because I think that there's such a, a void of understanding around the psychology of exercise. And we have sports psychologists, for instance, who work with very high-level athletes, but there are so many people who come into the fitness industry with hopes and expectations of themselves that never get fulfilled because nobody has really helped them with the scaffolding for understanding their mindset as they go into a new form of exercise. And for me, I, I know that exercise was a complete escape at a particular point in my life. And I became somebody who was a gym junkie and used exercise as an escape from other things to the point where I was numbing out of other areas of my life. And so I see those patterns coming up in the fitness industry where people are using it to avoid other things um, or people aren't engaging in it for the right reasons or people aren't engaging in exercise enough or at all because of those mindset issues. So at first I perceived the mental fitness model as being a scaffold to offer people who were entering into fitness and where that language overlays with the physical and, and mental fitness and where those analogies of your physical body and your mental being overlay, I thought that maybe that was the sweet spot for this model. But I'm starting to see that it probably has broader application. So people who I work with in the leadership space, for instance, are looking at it and saying, actually, this is really useful for leaders in business to be able to have a scaffold for how they understand their teams, how they work with their teams and how they then support their teams to work with each other. And people who have said, actually, this is really useful for the industry that I work in here, not just fitness. So it started to make me think more broadly about it. And I have you to thank for prompting me to apply to put this forward as a TEDx talk this year. So I'm really excited to be able to put this mental fitness concept out at TEDx South Uni SA this year. Which is really exciting. And um, I've had a sneak peek um, into some of what you're going to be talking about. And I really love that whole concept. Obviously, someone who hasn't hung out in the gym a whole lot, um, you know, that concept that this is more than just the physical, Mm. you know, it's about who we are as people. It's about belonging. It's about connection. Um, And it's about all of us, not just being exclusive. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely, which is why I think, well, maybe I should be using this model in ways that aren't just exclusive to the fitness arena but actually, you know, extend the reach a little bit more. So who knows where it could go from here. We look forward to seeing how that (laughs) that comes out at TEDxUniSA. Yeah, thank you. Very exciting. So you mentioned leadership as well and we were actually collaborating with another great human being, Kate Russell, who's the conflict coach on a thing called the shift series. So do you want to just give a little bit of an explanation? What is it and what are we doing and how's this all working? Yeah, I'm so excited about it and so excited to be invited to collaborate in that space because we've recognised that there's such a gap for people who particularly work in middle management and that's a place where I have, you know, played in over the years where you're trying to appease people who are, you know, above you in the business hierarchy while still supporting and managing people who are below you in that hierarchy as well. And it can be a really, really tricky thing to be managing up as well as managing down. So when we started to have conversations around the vulnerabilities that people have in that space and the common issues that are coming up in that space, 
we saw such a sweet spot for being able to unpack some of those commonalities and allowing a space for people to do that with with each other. And because Kate's got these amazing resources and amazing skills in conflict resolution, you've got these amazing ways of being able to bring out what's underneath the surface for people and just be really real about, you know, what's what's there for them through your art therapy. And I've got these scaffolds around mental fitness and psychology education. Wow, I just got yeah. so excited about yeah. the possibility to be helping people through these processes for themselves of going, how can I be a better leader within my team, especially when they're between that rock and a hard place of being, you know, stuck in the middle. Yeah, and something we've all, all three of us have talked about is the fact that to make it individual to each person, you know, mm-hmm. what's happening here rather than having a cliched cookie-cutter approach, mm-hmm. you know, it really will be about that self-reflection, what's happening, what's, what is needed right now for you as a leader Yeah, um, as well. So it's very exciting. So we'll pop a link below to the shift series as well. But before we finish up, Beck, I just am really interested in, your whole model and your whole sense of the way that you are and your being, Mm. what are some of the not negotiables in your world to keep yourself mentally fit and to be able to live the life that you want? Yeah. So the non-negotiables for me are around the space, having the space to be able to put the principles that I talk about with other people into practice and which leads me into another non-negotiable, which is walking my talk. Yeah. So I. So not just, just here's my model, everyone, please follow this, actually living it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And at the same time, while I'm walking that talk, also having the, the forgiveness of myself to, you know, when I stumble and fall, to know that that's okay and that's part of being human as well. So I think that's where compassion as part of the model is really, really important because certainly throughout my process of becoming mentally fitter through my life, I have had those places where I've fallen over again. And even just six months ago, I had a six-week bout of depression, which was, you know, quite severe actually. And it surprised me. And there were people in my life who were saying to me, you shouldn't be feeling this way. You're meant to be teaching people how not to feel this way. Get a hold of yourself. And for the first time, I was actually able to go, no, do you know what? It's okay that I'm feeling this way. Because for people who are fit and healthy, even they have bouts where they get ill. You know, you can be the fittest person and you can still come down with a virus. And I felt like it was the same for me. You know, I can be mentally fit and continue to work on myself as much as I had, but I still get sick. And, and I understand that that was a process around there was some subconscious stuff going on for me at that time around some decisions that I needed to make. And I was almost in paralysis about making those decisions. So I can look back and go, I understand where that bout of depression came from, but it was the self-forgiveness and the self-compassion that was really important around that. So that's one of my non-negotiables, allowing other people around me to call my bullshit if I'm not walking my talk, but at the same time, holding that space for myself to go, do you know what? You are just human. (laughs) You're not superhuman. Yeah. Yeah. And, and not, needing to be that perfect person. Yep. Like, you know, we are human and we have emotions. Not everything's always smooth sailing. Yeah. Um, that it's about navigating that and really trying to find those tools to help us get through. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you for offering some of those tools that you share so skillfully yeah, with other people. You. It's been a real benefit to me too. Yeah, so thank you for joining us today. Um, is there any 
parting saying or piece of advice that you've ever had that you think you would like to share with everyone? I think just two words. Be you. Be you. That sounds fantastic. Mm. (laughs) Thank you very much, Ben. Thanks, Bill. No worries. For show notes and more information about my guests and to get in touch with me, visit igniteartherapies.com.au.